0: been broken something like this and uh, there's a, a picture maybe of the pharaoh mourning the loss of his firstborn son night of terror as thousands perish and a little banner headline at the top israel's god is said to be behind mass slaughter pharaoh calls for national year of mourning for the dead i don't know maybe something like that it was a terrible night a terrible time to have been an egyptian And if I had been part of an Egyptian family at that time in history, I would have died that night. Simple as that. I'm a firstborn son. My wife Carol would have woken up to find that she'd lost her husband, her eldest son, her father, her brother, and her father-in-law because they were all firstborn sons. It must surely have been the most tragic, harrowing night in Egyptian history. A lot of people would sort of squirm at that and say, well, that's terrible. Why would God do such a thing? Forgetting that over the course of the previous weeks and months, he'd given Pharaoh and Egypt a lot of warnings about letting these people of his go. They had made slaves of the Israelites. They had exploited them. They had oppressed them. They had reduced them to the, to the status of slaves. And God said, I'm not having it. I want you to let these people go. And he'd given them warning after warning, sent them plague after plague. And Pharaoh again and again said, okay, take the people away. And then he changed his mind, and he wouldn't let them go. And finally God said, enough is enough. And this is what's going to happen. How differently things must have looked, though, in the land of Goshen, where God's people, the Israelites, lived. As the news began to filter through, that true to his threat, God had actually been through the land of their enemy, and had struck down the elder's son in every home. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, the ruler of the land, to the firstborn of the slave girl. What for Egypt was a night of horror and grief and loss was for Israel a night of deliverance and joy and triumph. In fact, for the Jews, this was one of the most significant and celebrated events in their entire history. It was the one that so many of the biblical writers, the Old Testament biblical writers and New Testament ones, looked back to as they remembered this great act of deliverance by their God, the Passover and the ensuing Exodus, whereby the Israelites left at last the land of Egypt, their great escape. I wonder if it reminds you of anything, even before we go any further, you who are part of the church today, God's chosen new covenant people, because it ought to. That decisive event that we've just been reading about should immediately remind us of another even more significant event, an event that involved the death of a lamb, a very special lamb. An event that meant death and defeat to one side, but joined victory to the other side. An event that brought eternal deliverance to the likes of you and me, but actually spelt doom to the hosts of hell. The single most celebrated event in Christian history, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary, the event that we 're here to remember, particularly this evening in our communion service, the Passover and the Exodus marked a new beginning in the life of the Hebrew nation, and in the same sort of way, the cross of Jesus paved the way for a new beginning in our lives. I used to sing a song in Sunday school many years ago, and as you 've already heard i 'm very old because i 've been coming here for thirty or forty years and uh, but about 55 years ago, when I was about seven years of age, we used to sing a song that went like this. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and all may go in. Do you know in the next line? At Calvary's cross is where it begins when we come as a sinner to Jesus. That's where it has to start. The Christian life begins at the cross of Christ. And if we have knelt there and acknowledged Jesus to be our saviour, then we are part of this new covenant people that we know as the church. Hope and pray that's happened to you. Our title this evening is the First Passover. So we're going to be giving some time to considering this significant event that happened probably about three and a half thousand years ago, somewhere close to the Nile Delta where Africa meets Asia. And we're going to put on some imaginary bifocals, Two sets of lenses through which to view this ancient story. And the first set of lenses are going to help us to understand and appreciate something of what I'm calling the typology of the chapter. Don't be worried by that word. I'm going to explain it to you. It's an interesting word, typology. What on earth does it mean? It sounds like something a secretary should learn at night school. Well, it's not actually, but it's, it's a long word. <laughs> it's one of those ologies. It's a technical word. But there's no need to be afraid of it, because the word ology simply means a subject of study, a subject of interest. So typology is the subject of, or the study of, types. Fair enough. But what in this context is a type? Let me give you a definition from the concise Oxford Dictionary. So not a biblical dictionary, not a theological one, just a concise Oxford Dictionary, which says a type is a foreshadowing in the Old Testament, of a person or event of the Christian dispensation or the Christian age. Here's another one, this time from a theological dictionary, Baker's uh, Dictionary of Theology. A type is a shadow cast on the pages of Old Testament history by a truth whose full embodiment or anti-type is found in the New Testament revelation. Hopefully, those two definitions will help you to begin to understand what a type is. Typology is the study of types, and a type, and putting it in the simplest way I know how, a type is, is a person or event in the Old Testament that prefigures or points forward to an altogether more significant person or event in the New Testament. It's something that we as a church can begin to appreciate, but of course the people of the Old Testament couldn't appreciate. These things were happening during the age in which the Israelites lived. Things happened within their culture and within their life of faith that pointed forward to a distant time when their Messiah would come. But it's only with the hindsight that we have, looking back retrospectively on the life of the Old Testament people, that we can see these shadows that were cast way back then about things that would happen in the life of Jesus and in the life of the church. Let me give you an example. It's an obvious one. In Matthew 12 and verse 40, Jesus says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, just as Jonah, this Old Testament prophet, this rather disobedient Old Testament prophet, was swallowed by this great fish and buried, as it were, in the deep, in the Mediterranean Sea. So Jesus was about to be swallowed up by death and buried in the heart of the earth. Jonah was a type, he was a shadow of Jesus. What happened to Jonah, however? Did he get digested by that big fish? Or did he see the light of day again? Yes, he did, didn't he? He got, he got spewed up on the shore. What a wonderful experience that must have been for him. But, but the, the, the fish vomited him up on the beach, and he was there three days, and then he was living again back on land, And this was a picture of Jesus coming out of the grave to a victorious resurrection. So what befell Jonah prefigured what happened to Jesus. Looking back on the life of Jonah, Jesus could see and we could see that what happened to him represented in advance what will one day happen to the Messiah, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So in technical terms, Jonah was the Old Testament type and Jesus is the fulfillment of that type. And the name for the fulfilment of a type is the anti-type. Are you with me so far? If you're thoroughly confused, don't worry too much about it. Hopefully it will become even clearer as we go through this passage. So let's go to Exodus 12. It's a chapter that is rich in typology. There are big shadows here, cast, which point forward to the coming of Jesus and particularly to the death of Jesus. And the typology centres on this Passover lamb, which, as we've already begun to see, is a wonderful picture of Jesus, a type, a shadow. Of Jesus. By the way, it's important to see that this type is one that is fully endorsed by Scripture itself. There's nothing speculative about this particular type, seeing a type of Jesus in the Lamb. Because in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, Paul says this. He says, get rid of the old yeast, and that's a picture of sin, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. Here it is. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Paul endorses this idea that the Passover lamb was a type of Jesus. A shadow cast on the, from the Old Testament into the New. That's important because there are preachers, and you may have heard some of them, and writers about Old Testament uh, books and theology that in their attempts, I think, to, and it's a worthy thing to try and do, in their, in their attempts to make the Old Testament more devotionally uh, rewarding to, to people like us today, have, have, I think, taken to seeing types where there are no types. Having read that Jesus, and you remember this from your Easter sermons, having read that Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples took them through Moses and all the prophets and explained to them what all the scripture said about himself, some preachers, some theologians seem to feel obliged to find a type of Jesus in virtually every nook and cranny in the Old Testament. And so they will say, this little detail reminds us of that, and this little detail reminds us of that. And so you find sound principles of biblical interpretation being sacrificed on the altar of typology. One scholar I read put it like this. Some have so embellished the Old Testament history with types that the symbol history is all but ignored. We need to remember the Old Testament scriptures were written for the Old Testament people and not primarily for us. They were written for the people of the day and they had a meaning to the people of the day. So we can't read back into it things that aren't there. This writer went on to say they've become so bogged down in details that absurdities and puerilities have swallowed up the essential truth. In other words, some preachers and teachers have taken the whole idea of types way too far. Sober exegesis must prevail over wild fancies, says this scholar. One must distinguish between what is essential in a type and what is peripheral in the same type. So with that in mind, and before this turns into a Bible college lecture, let's examine this picture of the Passover lamb and see how unmistakably, actually, it points forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. There are a number of things I want you to notice. Firstly, if you have a Bible open, that would be really helpful. But in verse 3 of chapter 12, we read this. Tell the whole community of Israel... That on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. So we'll begin with the obvious. What is glaringly obvious is the fact that the animal chosen for the sacrifice was a lamb. And that was deeply significant. Because Jesus is said to be what? By John the Baptist. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you remember the story of Abraham Genesis 22? Abraham took his son on a journey, his only son, Isaac, on a long journey. And God had told Abraham to offer his only son as a sacrifice to him. And this proved to be just a test, but Abraham didn't know that at the time. And Abraham makes his way, and I wonder what on earth he said to his wife Sarah about what he was going to do. But anyway, he went on his way, and he went to this mountain, and he built the altar, and he strapped Isaac down, and he laid him on the altar. And as they journeyed to the mountain, Isaac must have asked himself, or asked his father, you know, here's here's the wood for for the fire, but where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham said this, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And of course he did. Both then, he provided a lamb that was caught in a bush. And Abraham was able to take the lamb and put it on the altar in place of his son. But centuries later, God sent his one and only son into the world to be that lamb. And Isaiah says in his prophecy, in that most famous chapter probably, chapter 53, that Jesus, the Messiah, would be like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. On the other hand, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, uh, the book that gives us a glimpse of what is still yet to come, the Apostle John writes these words. Then I saw a lamb in this vision that God gives him of heaven. John says, I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. Well, it had been. The lamb had been slain, had been killed. Just as the Passover lamb was killed for the Hebrew family into whose home it had been taken, so the Lord Jesus, who came into this earth and came to his own people, was slain. Uh, For the human family into whose home, the earth, he had so graciously come. The Lamb of God. So the animal was a lamb. That's a shadow of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Verse 5. The animals you choose must be year old males without defect and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Two things to notice. First, the animal to be offered had to be in its prime. Had to be absolutely In its prime. What one biblical commentator calls the fullness of its strength. Fully grown. But not too old. That's how it was with Jesus. When the Lord Jesus was arrested and crucified. He was at the peak of his powers. When he offered himself up. He was at the peak of his powers. In the fullness of his strength. He didn't die as an old man. But in the prime of his human life. A man in his early 30s. Fully grown. But not old. Second, this was to be a perfect lamb. This was to be a totally unblemished lamb. If it had a sore on its leg, that was no good. If it had broken, you know, one of the other legs, that was no good. It had to be a perfect lamb. It was no good if it was weak in the eyes or lame in the legs. It had to be without defect. Nothing but a perfect sacrifice could satisfy the requirements of a holy God. And so it was that when the time came for a once-for-all sacrifice... That would end the need for any other sacrifice. A sacrifice on the behalf of all mankind, that too had to be perfect. And so it was, because Peter says of Jesus, he was a lamb without blemish or defect. Thirdly, in verse 6, you'll see that all the people of the community of Israel had to slaughter the lambs at twilight. Now, again, there are two things to notice here, two parallels between the Passover lamb and Jesus. First of all, all the people had to slay the lamb. Another biblical writer says this, not that every particular individual man, woman and child shared in the act itself, that is of killing the sheep, but they did so representatively. The head of the household stood and acted on behalf of each member of his family. And that points forward, I think, to the fact that Jesus was crucified, not just at the demand of the chief priests, not just because Pilate had said what he said, not just at the whim of the Pharisees, but the common consent of all the people. They all clamored for the death of the Lamb. They were all responsible for the death of the Lamb. And in, in a very real sense, we're all responsible. The whole of the human race, if we had not sinned, if we had not come short of the glory of God, the Lamb would never have had to die. But we all have sinned, so we're all responsible. For the death of Jesus. Secondly, of course, the lamb had to die. It wasn't enough to be brought into the home and looked after for three or four days. It actually had to die. It had to give its life. If the life of the firstborn son was to be saved, the lamb had to actually die and be a sacrifice in its place. And so the Lord Jesus had to die. As he said himself actually on a number of occasions. He died, the firstborn over all creation, in place of you and in place of me. Graham Kendrick put it like this in one of his beautiful songs. My debt he pays, my death he dies, that I might live. Hallelujah. He died in place of us. You begin to see the wonder of this type. This shadow in the Old Testament. You're starting to appreciate, if you never have before, how precisely the Passover lamb prefigured the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus. Here's another thing in verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. The lamb not only had to die, its blood had to be shed. It was the blood of the lamb that was to mark the house As being one where faith was laying hold of God's promise. The blood not only had to be shed, the blood had to be applied. And so it is with Jesus and us. His blood had to be shed and it was at the cross as they pierced his hands, his feet, his side, his head. And looking back to the crucifixion, John writes in one of his books, there was a flow of blood and water. End of his gospel. There could be no doubt the Saviour's blood was shed. The question is, have we applied that blood personally? Have we come to Jesus and said, Lord, may your blood be effective for me. May your blood cover my sin. If the home wasn't marked with the blood, even in Goshen, where the Israelites lived, then the destroyer visited that home, the firstborn son died. If we're not marked personally, By the blood of Christ. If we've not been uh, coming to him. If we've not come to him. Put our faith and trust in him personally. And trusted in his blood. To bring forgiveness for our sins. We will perish too. Fifthly verse 8. That same night there to eat of the meat. Roasted over the fire. What on earth has that got to do with Jesus? Verse 8. There to eat the meat. Roasted over the fire. The New Testament tells us. Man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. Now, what symbol does the Bible most often use for judgment? It's a little four-letter word, fire. Fire in the Bible is often a picture of judgment. What happened to the Passover lamb? It was killed, and then it went through the fire. How does that apply to Jesus? Well, if he was to fully take our place, he not only had to die, he somehow had to experience the fire of God's judgment that should rightly have been ours. He had to go through those hours of darkness on the cross where he cried out, Father, Father, you know, don't be separated from me. Don't be separated from me. Isaiah said it prophetically, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went through that darkness and through that fire for us, so that we might be healed from our sins. And secondly, in this verse, we find that the family had to eat the lamb. And did not Jesus say, albeit speaking figuratively, that whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me? and I in him. Symbolically, when we take this bread and this wine, we are taking the body and blood of Jesus. We're remembering that his body was taken and put on the cross and his blood was shed for us. And Jesus asked asked us to do that in remembrance of him. It sounds gruesome. What was he saying? He was saying that once we've come to know him personally as our saviour, we must feed on him, spiritually feed on him. We must be nourished by the life of Christ within us, even as the people of Israel were nourished by that meal before they left Egypt. Finally, in respect of the typology in verse 46, a verse we didn't read, concerning the Passover lamb, it says, do not break any of its bones. Jumping into John's gospel, it says this, when they came to Jesus, he's already on the cross with two others, one each side. When they came to Jesus, and found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. The victims of crucifixion often had their legs broken in order to bring about, really, much more quickly, their death. It was a way of taking away the support they had for the rest of their body so that they died. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw its given testimony, his testimony is true. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. The typology of this chapter. That's all I want to say about it. Except to add this one glorious truth. That there is a crucial way in which the anti-type, Jesus, differed from the type, the lamb. And it's this. In Goshen, amongst the people of Israel, every family had to offer a lamb. There were literally thousands of lambs slaughtered that night amongst God's people. But as one of the New Testament writers points out, when Jesus died, he offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He was truly the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died once and for all for all who will trust him. So as you and I read Exodus 12 in 2018, we not only get to see how God provided a wonderful way of salvation for his people back then, but we also get to see a picture of how God would one day provide a way of salvation for the likes of us, and that's spirit-inspired typology. The Israelites could never have appreciated it, but as the people of God looking back on both the New Testament scriptures and the Old Testament, we can see it. So, on now to our second set of lenses. You'll be relieved to hear we're going to spend about a fifth of the time on this that we spent on the first set. Just to look very quickly at the theology of the chapter. We've looked at the typology, let's look at the theology. What great biblical doctrines are alluded to in this chapter? What is there that would encourage us as God's people today and challenge us, people like you and me? In the space of three consecutive verses, I found hints Of three of the Bible's mega themes. Themes that run right through scripture. I just want to mention them briefly as I finish. Here's the first, judgment. Verse 12 of our chapter. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. Here it is. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. For I am the Lord. As I said, God had given the Egyptian people and the Egyptian ruler... An awful lot of warning about this. A lot of time to turn around and to stop this happening. But they refused. And judgment fell that terrible night on the nation of Egypt. Because God says that he's holy. And God says that he cannot be mocked. And the Pharaoh had flown in the face of God for week after week and month after month. He'd flouted God's demands. And for a while God had tolerated it. But enough was enough, and the time had come for judgment. On rich and poor, on the powerful and on the weak, the fire was about to fall. And friends, I have to say to you that we need to be aware of people who maybe even stand in pulpits like this and give the impression that God is some kind of cuddly toy in the sky. Someone who may have cause to wag the divine finger at us occasionally, but would never get really heated about our sin. That is not the picture of God the Bible paints. 378 times in the Bible, the word judgment is used. Now that ought to tell us something. Like the verse I read earlier said, man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. Alec Matea comments on that verse and says, those who will not bow to his word must bend to his judgment. And that's a warning to people today. And we need to wise up to that and we need to be prepared to to share that with people, that God is a God who will not be mocked. And if we don't Repent of our sin and trust him for his forgiveness then one day we will bow before him we'll bend before him and we'll receive his judgment another little ditty that I used to sing as a child went something like this he did not come to judge the world he did not come to blame he did not only come to seek it was to save he came now that of course is perfectly true Jesus didn't come at that time, 2,000 years ago, to judge the world. But there's coming a day when he will. There's coming a day when he will. And Philippians 2 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. We have the opportunity today to bow our knee willingly to Christ and receive his salvation. If we don't, then we'll bend the knee to God in judgment when that awful day comes. Let's move on to the second key mega theme. Salvation in verse 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, in general terms, the Israelites were no less guilty of sin than the Egyptians. Isn't that true? They they were all actually sinners, just as today. We are all sinners. They were no less guilty, but God had a plan that would save them because they were the people that he set His love upon a particular way. A plan by which his just demands would be met, whilst at the same time providing a way of escape for his chosen people. And the answer was very simple. It was substitution. Each man is to take a lamb for his family. Death came to Israel, just as death came to Egypt, but instead of it hitting those who deserved it, it fell on an uh, an innocent substitute. A lamb without blemish. The lamb had done nothing wrong. But the lamb died. In the place of those who were sinners. I love what Matthias says about this. He says the judgment of God had swept through the houses of the Egyptians. From the royal family at the top to the single parent family of the slave girl at the bottom. And what is not so obvious is that there was also someone dead in the houses of the Israelites. For the lamb had died. And had been brought into the house to provide the main part of the Passover feast. Most of you will know that deeply moving old hymn called Man of Sorrows. And the second verse reads like this. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned, he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Salvation, friends, is by substitution. The only way to avoid the righteous, holy wrath of God is to receive the saviour that God has provided in the person of Jesus, who bore that wrath for us at the cross. (laughs) That was God's plan carried out at Calvary by his own son. Finally, and thirdly, and this is where it comes to the, the next main part of our service, remembrance, verse 14. This is a day, God said to Israel, this is a day you're to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So this mighty deliverance from the slavery and the bondage of Egypt was something that the people of Israel were called to remember year on year for generations, for all time. The passing of time would cause them to forget eventually how it had happened and who had done it. So very specific instructions were given as to how the people were to bring the event to mind, even generations and centuries down into history. They were to celebrate the Passover. They were to come together as families. They were to share the Passover meal so that they would never forget that it was God who had rescued them and brought them out of Egypt. And that's why Jesus told his disciples to share a meal together. In remembrance of him, he started a new Passover, if you like. A man called Larry Richards in his devotional commentary on scripture says, it's not enough to think now and then of what God has done for us. We need to set aside regular times to remember him. And this evening is such a time. So there it is, Exodus 11 and 12. Two vital chapters. Record, I believe, of an actual historical event. God rescuing his people from their oppressors. God stepping into history to save his chosen people from slavery. Bringing them out into a land of their own. But in a wonderful way, as we look back on those momentous events... They prove to be a powerful type or shadow of what was yet to come. They direct us to the cross, to the sin-bearing Lamb of God. And they remind us that we have a God who has delivered his people from the slavery of sin and is now leading us on towards the ultimate promised land of heaven itself, where we get to be with him forever. And if that's not something to get excited about, I'm a Dutchman's uncle. If it's not an act worth remembering and celebrating, I don't know what it is. So let's spend a bit of time focusing on the table, focusing on the bread and wine, remembering that it was Jesus, God's beloved son, who laid down his life for us. Amen.